Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, welcome to Church 214. Who's uh, been enjoying this Revelation series? Yeah. Love it. Me too. Me too. So we're going to be in the sixth letter uh, uh, to the book to the church of Philadelphia today, uh, chapter three of Revelation. But before we get into that, I just want to set this, the foundation for the season that we're in. How many know that we've talked about this a lot since the beginning of the year, but we're in a Psalm 23 season. Amen. I don't know if you realize that in your life and in the, in the current life of this church family, but we're in a Psalm 23 season. And um, our family just moved uh, a couple months ago out to a farm, and so preaching preparation looks a lot different right now. I'm trying to find my rhythm and others. My wife's trying to find her rhythm out there, and um, it's, just, it's just different when you move physical locations. You know, the, the spots that you used to go to be alone with the Lord are, are different. And so yesterday I was going to, you know, it was still very muggy yesterday afternoon, right? Thank God the, the rain came and cooled us down. I was going to go take this nice walk with the Lord, Psalm 23, walk with the Lord on the property, and uh, just kind of hear his, hear his heart, hear his voice, get my heart in final tune with him today. And I'm walking along, and Jules and I just made this, this key here, which we had made in the barn, and it was, I don't think there was a dry spot in my body. It was, it was, I was soaked. Um, she'd stamped 307 onto this, this key, and you'll understand that a little bit later. So I'm walking alone with the Lord, just listening, praying. All of a sudden, ow, what was that? Heard this buzzing. I felt like this uh, bite on my shoulder. I'm like, well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a hornet, because I don't think I feel a stinger, but something took some flesh from me. And I look around, and there's like, I kid you not, I don't know if you know what horse flies are, but they are big old. Look like a small bird. And this guy is, I'm praying to the Lord, you know, peaceful streams. You know, we got birds and horse flies, yeah. These, these demon flies. This guy's t- trying to take a bite of them. And then his friend joined him. So I got these two demon flies that are trying to take bites of my flesh. And I've got my hat, and I'm, I'm just like trying to hit them and whack them and kill them. And fortunately, my son came along. I started to go through the valley, you know, Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. Like, God, I'm trying to have some time with you, and these demon flies are attacking. They're really annoying me. And so my, my son came up behind me. He was on a little dirt bike. And I go, are there, are there horse flies on me? He's like, yeah, they're huge. I'm like, take my hat and kill him. So he, he whacked one. We got it down there. And I'm cursing this thing like he's Goliath. Like, you will, you will die. The birds of the air will eat your flesh. It's funny, but it's also... True, like Psalm 23 seasons aren't always peaceful streams and green meadows. There, there are valleys as we go through this season, and through the valley, we allow the Lord to his rod and staff to protect us, and we come through the valley, and he brings us to a table. And the table is still in the presence of our enemies. So sometimes the, the fight, the war, is a signal that you are on the right track, You are in the Psalm 23 season, but allow the Lord to anoint your head with oil, 
Allow his Holy Spirit to allow his, your cup to overflow, and he'll bring you. He's, he's following you with goodness and mercy, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? So all that to say, we know we're in a Psalm 23 season. And on March 5th, I had, was asking the Lord. I was, I was here. I can't remember if it was a breakthrough or a Sunday. But I asked the Lord, I said, we're, we're in a Psalm 23 season. What comes next? And he said to me, I, lo- I love how the Lord answers our questions with a question. He said simply to me, what's after Psalm 23? And I go, oh, Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a, a passage that David wrote when he was in Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God, was coming up the hill into Jerusalem. And he was so excited. Remember a little bit before this, he was so excited that he was he's basically dancing with no clothes on before the Lord, dancing in his underwear. He got criticized from his wife, that spirit of Michael that, you know, if someone criticizes your worship before the Lord, that's a spirit of Michael. That's, that's the spirit of the world. We, we dance and we shout unto the Lord. Everything that we do is for the Lord, not for people, not as show. And so David's watching this ark come home to its, the presence come home. And he wrote this. He says, open up ancient gates. Open up, you ancient doors, and let the king of glory enter. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Open up, you ancient gates. Open up, you ancient doors. He's telling the doorways like it's, they're not high enough. They're not big enough to allow this king who is bigger than anything or anyone to allow his presence to come. And he's like, guys, it's got to get bigger. The, the doorway's got to get wider. And I'm telling you all of this to set the stage for the season that we're in, but also the season we're going into. I believe there's ancient doors and ancient gates that are opening up if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Why don't you stand on your feet? Let's pray before we get started. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're opening doorways. Thank you that what was closed is now open in Jesus' name. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a faith to believe, to stand firm that the word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. So I pray this morning that it would be your voice speaking through this microphone, that I would get out of the way and allow King Jesus to speak to each and every heart in this room and on this podcast, or maybe 10 years from now, that it will change more than one heart that it would change all of our hearts, that we would be different people from when we walked in this place. We thank you for the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts between our soul and our spirit. Would you do that this morning? Would you cut like a surgeon between our soul and our spirit? Would you seal it in our hearts today? And all God's people said, amen. Stay on your feet, not on your seat, on your feet. Why don't you open up your hands and receive these words to the sixth church in Revelation, Philadelphia. 
Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Philadelphia, for these are the solemn words of the Holy One, the true one, who has David's key, who opens doors that none can shut and who closes doors that none can open. I know all that you've done. Now I've set before you a wide open door that no one can shut. For I know that you possess only a little power, yet you've kept my word and haven't denied my name. Watch how I deal with those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews but are not, for they are lying. I will, come, I will make them come and bow at your feet and acknowledge how much I've loved you, because you've passionately kept my message of perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of proving that is coming to test every person on earth. But I come swiftly, so cling tightly to what you have so that no one may seize your crown of victory. For the one who is victorious, I will make you to be a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, permanently secure. And I will write to you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, descending from my God out of heaven. And I'll write my own name on you. So the one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is now saying to all the churches. You may take your seats. There's a lot of uh, geographical and um, historical data I could give you on Philadelphia, uh, but I'm not going to this morning because of, of time. Honestly, this one letter could be a six-month series. Um, so I'd encourage you to study that for, for yourselves. There's a, so much significance to the, the political and the, the cultural and the um, historical context of this city. We just don't have time to go into it this morning with what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The one, one of the things I love about Revelation is how the Holy Spirit and John together are, are, are writing this, this, this book, this letter, uh, to us, to churches then, but also to the church now. And John is weaving these absolute gems of prophecy from what we like to call the First Testament, the Old Testament, these clues, these mysteries, and it's creating even more mystery and... and, and um, it's awesome because the Lord hides his glory in mysteries, doesn't he? And it's the glory of kings and queens, you and I, to search that mystery out. So it's fascinating. And John's grabbing these bits of Ezekiel and Zechariah. They're never like direct quotes, but they're like, they're, they're these, these gems that are just in there. And Daniel and this obscure reference here, and he's mixing it all together like these, this ingredients on a pizza that you couldn't possibly think go together. And then wham, you're like, whoa, how did that get there? And it's like this 10,000-piece puzzle that John's creating and the Holy Spirit are creating. And just when you think you can't find the piece, he's like, yep, let me grab that from over here and put it right into place. And you never saw how it all fit together. That's the mystery of Revelation. That's the mystery of the Scripture. It's beautiful. And chapter 1 of Revelation is an absolute gemstone of our faith. It provides so much foundation and theology for who we are as Christ followers. And in each of the seven letters to the churches, John will refer back to chapter 1, as we've seen, right? And with a piece of imagery of Jesus, of who he is. And he does the same thing to the letter to Philadelphia. I'm going to spend the majority of our time this morning focused on one or two verses in Revelation 3, mainly 307. 
the key. Now, you're sitting in a building that's address is 307 right now. And I believe this is foundational for what a, the key to our city that this building is, the key um, to you, the, the temple that you're sitting in. You are a temple, but you're also sitting in a physical temple that's also 307. We know that numbers are significant here. You're, you're also in a church named after Acts 2.14. So this is significant. Verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 7. Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Philadelphia, for these are the solemn words of the Holy One, the true one who has David's key, who opens doors that none can shut and who closes doors that none can open. I know all of you've done. The solemn words of the Holy One, that's Jesus, the true one who has David's key. So John is bringing back this imagery from chapter 1 right, where Jesus has a key. Let's rewind. Let's go back to chapter 1 for a moment. And John, remember, he hears this trumpet sound, this voice behind him, and he turns, and all of us need to turn, and he sees Jesus in all of his splendor, and he, he sees someone like the Son of Man standing in the middle of these lampstands. We know the lampstands are the churches, and he's wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest, and his head and his hair were white as wool, gleaming as white snow, and his eyes were as flames of fire, and his feet were as bright and metal, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was shining as the brightness of the blinding sun. In verse 17, John said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right reassuring hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, hold on. Chapter 3 says he's the, the holy one, the true one who has David's key. Back in chapter 1, it says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. What in the world is going on here? Well, I'll tell you, whether you like it or not, and you're going to like it. John's pulling us back to chapter 1, but he's also pulling us to different places in the First Testament. This is absolutely massive. John is revealing some things with two sentences here from each the first and the third chapter that shift absolutely everything for us. So let's start with the keys in chapter 1. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is absolutely critical to our theology, this tenet of our faith. In fact, so critical, in fact, that some denominations, um, some churches have actually tried to take this theology out. And you know when the enemy is trying to take something out, that there's something very significant there. So we know that Jesus died on the cross, right? We know that, yes? This is an interactive service. Yes, he died on the cross, dead. He said, I was dead. See, God sent his son for your sake, for my sake, wrapped in flesh, he was fully man, he was fully God, he became the second Adam for us. This is the Jesus that John's seeing in all of his glory in chapter 1. The red letters of Jesus' words to John saying, I died. 
See, you and I, we crucified him. The enemy crucified him. And evil thought it had won that day, didn't they? Jesus, the Son of God, dead. Dead, dead, dead. It was all over. Except that it wasn't. See, those in the Old Testament, the First Testament, those who were righteous, they obviously died before the cross, didn't they? But the righteous still held on to hope that one day after they died that Yahweh would somehow make a way, that somehow he would, he would, he would make things right to reunite them together like the father had originally planned in the garden. It was always about a, a father and his children together, right? And then we messed it up by sin entering the world. So the righteous, though, they had this hope that they would somehow be reu reunited with Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, we understand that Sheol, this, this word Sheol, was the place of the dead, the underworld, like a holding jail cell, if you will. That when people died, righteous or unrighteous, they would go to Sheol to be with their fathers. That's some of the language that you'll see from the First Testament. Yet the righteous still hung on to hope. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word Hades. The underworld, the place of the dead. This is the word that we see there in chapter 1 of Revelation. But see, that's not all. Death and Hades weren't just places. Listen to me carefully. Death and Hades, capital D, capital H, they are persons, spiritual beings. See, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, Paul writes. So when Jesus says, I've got the keys of death and Hades, he wasn't just talking about a place. He was talking about people that formerly, persons, spiritual persons that formerly held these keys. This isn't massive to understand. And these, this spirit of death and Hades, they were responsible for the holding cell, that jail in the underworld of the dead. They had the keys. They kept their captives imprisoned. So the enemy, when he thought he had killed the Son of God, that it was over, that, that, that Satan had won, he actually sent the second Adam to the very place that he shouldn't have sent him, to the underworld. Because where do people go when they die? The place of death and Hades, the underworld. And we've somehow twisted this in our minds to think that on that, you know, he died on Friday and then Saturday he was just kind of straight chilling in his tomb, resting there. No. It was not a silent Saturday. I'm here to tell you it was a savage Saturday. We got we to gotta understand what's really happening here because when Jesus died, he went to the underworld. Remember, he said, I died. And he shows up in front of the spirit of death and Hades, and he says, hey, remember me? And they knew who he was. He said, I died, but guess what? I'm alive. Hand over the keys. Hand over the keys. And in one fell swoop, Jesus took the keys of death and the grave and now that's why he tells John, and this is so significant, now I hold 
the power of death. Those spirits of death, that spirit of suicide, that spirit of fear that's been so prevalent in the last couple years especially and over this next generation, Jesus holds the keys. We do not bow to the spirit of death and of Hades because they have no more power. They, they may talk a good game, but they have no authority any longer. And Jesus ripped the keys straight out of death and Hades' hands that day. And then he did this. He released the righteous captives that were holding on to hope. He opened the jail cell, released them to be with Yahweh, and he had other prisoners now that we read about in Colossians 2.14. Having canceled the certificate of death consisting of legal demands that was in force against us, he blotted it out with his blood, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is, it's talking about it right here. Paul's talking about it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, those spiritual demons, those principalities, the supernatural forces operating against us. And he didn't only disarm them, take their keys away. He made a public, public example of them in the heavenly realms. In other words, a picture of him parading prisoners of evil through the streets of heaven, saying, this, you thought you had killed me. I died, but guess what? I'm alive forevermore, and now I hold your keys, and now you're my prisoner. And not only that, you can't have any more prisoners if they choose me, because I've got the keys. There's multiple different scriptures in the First Testament, the Old Testament, that talk about this, that prophesy this. We'll just read a couple of them, just so you don't think I'm crazy. Zechariah 9.11, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, my chosen people, the covenant was sealed with blood, and I have freed your prisoners from the waterless pit. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, Paul writes, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but also that he first descended into the lower regions of the earth? He descended, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. We have to understand this, that when he died, he descended first. He was a savage warrior. In the gates of hell, he ripped away those keys. He, he freed captives and he made more captives of the enemy. And then he ascended. On the way, he stopped to see Mary, remember, in the garden? Then he ascended to the heavenly realms, making war against every principality by the power of the cross. That is why the cross and this theology is so powerful, because he holds the keys of death and Hades. That's why in Hosea 13, 14, he prophesies this. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That's a savage Jesus that day. And you thought Paul wrote that, didn't you? No, he was just repeating what Hosea had written when he said, death is swallowed up in victory. Hey, death, he's talking to a spiritual person. Hey, death, where's your victory now? Hey, Hades, where's your sting now? Because my Jesus just stole your keys. You aren't jailers anymore. The captives have been freed, including you, 
because of the power of the cross. They no longer have authority. So John's writing this letter to the church in Philadelphia. They know what he said in chapter 1, right? The keys of death and Hades. And all of a sudden, he takes the key language and he switches it to what? He's the one who holds David's key. David's key. So Jesus is actually holding a set of keys. He's got death and Hades keys over here, and he's got David's key over here. Now, what's David's key? This is awesome. The key of David is a reference to Isaiah 22, 22. It's an obscure passage, passage just like that 10,000-piece puzzle I was mentioning. John's pulling in from Isaiah. He's pulling in David's key. And the Church of Philadelphia would have known what this is because they studied. Their Bible was that First Testament, was that Old Testament. Amen? So they studied it like nobody's business. Let's check out Isaiah 22. Verse 20. Then it will come to pass in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic of distinction and tie your sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set on his shoulder the key of the house of David. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in firm place, and he will become a throne of honor and glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the honor and glory, the complete responsibility of his father's house, offspring and issue for the family, high and low, and the least of the articles from the bowls to all the jars. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg Eliakim, that was driven into the firm place will give way and it will break off and fall and the burden hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. In that day it will come to pass that I will summon my servant Eliakim. This is a prophetic reference to Jesus back in, that Isaiah is writing thousands of years before Jesus came. The phrase my servant references future chapters that Isaiah would write, chapters 40 to 53, which are also references to Jesus. He was referred to um, as my servant. Eliakim means God raises up. It's, he's a type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of the Messiah, and he's clothed with a tunic of distinction, a sash securely tied around him. Sounds an awfully like, like, the, like the one that John turns and sees in Revelation 1. Remember, wearing a full-length robe, with a golden sash across his chest, a king. See, John's bringing the meaning of all of this from the First Testament together. And so there's understanding that the Church of Philadelphia would be like, oh, that's what that meant way back there. So it should be the same thing that's going through your mind right now. Oh, my goodness. The Word of God is so powerful. It's living and active, and nothing is wasted. He's piecing all of this mystery together. And Isaiah continues, and he says, this Eliakim, this type of Jesus, will become a father, a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he's a servant, he's a king, he's a father. He's the one who God raises up, and he's given authority. He's given the key of the house of David on his shoulder. A few chapters earlier, you'll remember this passage Isaiah had written in, in chapter 9. The government will be on his 
shoulders. It's the place where you carry the burden. He's got all the weight on him because he says to us, my yoke is easy, my burden is light for you. I'm carrying all the weight on me and I've got the key to the house of David on my back, on my shoulder. Now the house of David, we could preach a whole series on this. We don't have time today. But you simply have to understand this. This is the promise that the Lord made to David. In 2 Samuel 7, he said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, the house of David is talking about an eternal kingdom. And the son of David, who was Jesus, that's what he was referred to because he came from David's lineage, the seed of David. He holds the key to the doorway of that eternal house, of that eternal temple. See, Eliakim is a prophetic symbol of a greater kingdom coming, a servant that becomes a king over a kingdom, not just any kingdom, but a new Eden, a new garden, a new place for a father to be reunited with his sons and daughters. It's the house of David. So that's why when John references the one who holds the key in his letter to Philadelphia, there's so much going on here. There's a whole set of keys going on here. The warrior King Jesus holds a set of keys. He descended to the underworld. He ripped away the keys from death and Hades. And as he did, he proclaimed eternal death to demonic entities And as he ascended, he released the righteous captives, including you and me. And he proclaimed eternal life to the righteous and those who believe in him. He holds all the keys. And keys do what? Keys open doors. Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Philadelphia, for these are the solemn words of the Holy One, the true one who has David's key, who opens doors that none can shut and who closes doors that none can open. I know all that you've done. I'll never forget the moment. I've talked about this many times, but maybe you haven't heard this story before. January 12th, 2018. It was Heidi's birthday. That's why I remember that date. I woke up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning just with a start. I don't know if you've ever done that. You've just woken up and kind of like jolted yourself awake. I don't know that it was an audible voice of Jesus, but it was so loud in my spirit, it might as well been a trumpet blast. And And the Holy Spirit said to me loudly, what was closed is now open. What was closed is now open. There's things in your life that you just don't forget. That's one of them for me. And that's why this message is very special to me. That's why 307, Revelation 307 is very special. And it's no accident that our our address is 307 Oak Street because this building is a key. It's a doorway for for the kingdom of God to flow through and be opened and closed as he sees fit. Keys represent authority to open and close doors. And here's the cool thing. Jesus gives keys to sons and daughters. He's holding keys. He gives keys. 
he said in Matthew 16, 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You, me, his keys. See, he's the heart of the father. He could do it all himself. He's God, right? But he, that's not his heart. He wants his sons and daughters. He wants family participation. That's why he, he says, you're seated with me in heavenly places, far above every principality and power. That's why he says, I will give you the keys. Then we have to decide what we're going to do with those keys. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. What you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Hmm. Binding and loosing. We've talked about this before. We're actually given his keys of authority, but we have to step into it and use those keys. I love this story from Mark 4. Jairus uh, had just come to Jesus and asked that, his, that Jesus would come and, and heal his daughter because his daughter was ill, very ill. If you remember the story, they kind of get, Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house and they get interrupted because the woman with the issue of blood reaches out and touches the tassels of his robe. And she gets instantly healed. And there's a lot of commotion. I mean, it's an amazing story. And all of a sudden, that, that kind of all happened and, and, and Jesus was speaking to them. And it says, after he'd finished speaking, people arrived from Jairus' house and pushed through the crowd to give Jairus the news. There's no need to trouble the master any longer because your daughter is dead. But Jesus refused to listen to what they were told and said to the Jewish official, don't yield to fear. All you need to do is keep on believing. So they left for his home and Jesus didn't allow anyone to go with them except Peter and James and John. When they arrived at the home of Jairus, they encountered a noisy uproar among the people, for they were all weeping and wailing. Upon entering the home, Jesus said to them, Why all this weeping and grief? Didn't you know that this girl is not dead, but simply asleep? Then everyone began to ridicule Jesus and make fun of him, but he threw them all outside. He's savage. He threw them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and his three disciples and went into the room where the girl was lying, and he tenderly clasped the child's hand in his and said to her in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, wake up from the sleep of death. And instantly, the 12-year-old girl sat up, stood to her feet, and started walking around the room. Everyone was overcome in astonishment in seeing this miracle. You might say, Chris, why did you switch from keys of authority to this passage? Because I want to show you practically, and these are just some simple practical applications for using the keys of heaven that you have authority because of Jesus in. We need to follow his example. Check this out. Number one, if you're writing this down, Jesus refused to listen. There are voices in your life in my life that you need to close the door to. Jesus refused to listen to certain voices. And you and I need to do the same thing. That's a key of authority. It may sound harsh, but listen, Jesus both closes doors and he opens them. How many of you are grateful for a time that the Lord has closed the door in your life and you look back and are like, oh my goodness, what I wanted, if I'd have gone through that door, 
I'd be a wreck. And I, I, want, I, I was praying for that to open. I, like, I desperately wanted that for open. He shut the door and he locked it. And now looking back, you're like, thank you, Jesus. Literally saved my life. He both, we have to thank him for both the open doors and the closed doors. And there are times that you and I need to refuse to listen to certain voices. We have to shut and bind on earth to shut and bind in the heavenly realm. We're not, we're not against people. We've talked about this. We, our battle is not against people. The trick is, the trickiness is, some people carry demonic entities with them. And that voice of those demonic entities needs to be refused to listen to. Number two, don't yield to fear. Don't yield to fear, but keep on believing. Jesus says this over and over and over and over again. Why does he say it so much? Because you and I tend to yield to fear. He says this in Revelation. He says this in the Gospels. He says this all over the Bible. Do not fear. Do not yield to fear. Just believe. See, if there's a door of fear in front of you, that is not a door of Jesus. You can bank on that. Unless it's the fear of the Lord, a holy fear. If there's a fear of a door of fear in front of you, that is not a door of Jesus. Lock that door. And then open the door of faith and walk through that door. You have the key. Number three. He brought only the most trusted voices with him. This is huge. Because the world says, well, we should just all do it together, together. He didn't allow anyone except for Peter, James, and John. Not even the full set of 12 got to go. Peter, James, and John. It wasn't a secret club. He just knew he could only bring the top trusted voices with him. And sometimes you and I are too trusting of information that we give out. Many times. See, here's the thing. Witchcraft operates on information. Now, the demonic is not omnipresent like, like the Lord. Jesus, Yahweh is everywhere. He knows everything. The demonic operates on information. They can't be in all places at the same time. Okay, so sometimes unknowingly you're giving information to the wrong realm by not trusting certain, your most trusted voices. Listen to me, there's a tension in this. Hear, hear my heart. It's very important that we're vulnerable, that our hearts are not closed, that our hearts open up, but we have to be vulnerable in the right settings with people that we can trust, with people that will, will not crush our heart, but steward our heart that will shepherd our heart. Does that make sense? I remember a couple years ago, I was meeting with somebody in a restaurant and I started to share some information with them. And it, would, it, it, it was information I was planning on sharing with this person. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit like so strongly said, stop, stop. And I obeyed, but I didn't understand why. Then about a year later, I understood why. We have to be locked in, step, stepping with the Spirit. We have to understand when to open doors, when to close doors. You have his keys, but use them wisely. Number four, he threw out the mockers. Proverbs says this, throw out the mocker and out will go strife. 
This is one of my favorite business principles. This is, this is a life principle. If there is strife and contention in your workplace, in your home, in your church, throw out the mocking spirit. I've seen it over and over and over again. Pray that spirit out. Throw it out. Jesus, in this case, I'm telling you, he's savage. Savage Jesus just throws him out of the house. Probably what he had Peter, James, and John along for. Hey, remove these guys. They're not helping. In fact, they're hurting the situation. They're speaking death. And actually, well, I don't hold me up, but I'm about to hold the keys of death. I, I speak life. I'm Jesus. See, what Jesus did in the physical, refusing to listen to negative voices, not yielding to fear but operating in faith, surrounding himself with only trusting and encouraging voices and throwing out the mocking spirit, those are four keys in the physical realm that you and I can use to partner with keys in the heavenly realm. Do you see that? See how that works? So many more examples, but I just wanted to give you something practical for today. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See, he's handing his sons and daughters his set of keys. But we must use that authority to walk through doors that he wants us to open and to close other doors that he wants us to shut. And when he shuts a door and when he opens a door, it's permanent. Back to the letter in Philadelphia. For these are the solemn words of the Holy One, the true one who has David's key, who opens doors that none can shut and who closes doors that none can open. I know all that you've done. Now I've set before you a wide open door that no one can shut. For I know that you possess only a little power. Yet you've kept my word and haven't denied my name. Did you know this is the only letter of the seven letters to the churches, this is the only letter that Jesus doesn't criticize them for anything. Now you could say, well, he told them they only had a little power. It's actually not a criticism, though. I know you possess a little power. How many of you in the room feel like in this season that you only have a little power? Be honest with me. So the rest of you have a lot of power? Okay. Okay. Be honest with yourself. I know you have a little power. You know that word little? It's the same word that Jesus uses when he's telling the parable of the mustard seed. Faith as little as a mustard seed. That's all he's asking for is a little. Because he can do a lot with a little. Whether it's a duration of time, a little time, whether it's a an amount as small, as little as a mustard seed. See, that amount of faith, that little faith, remember, it can move mountains. It can shift everything. Just a little. Just a little. See, he's not condemning you. He's not condemning the church in Philadelphia. He's not condemning Church 214 today. This is a really positive message today an encouraging message. I'm sure he had things that he could tell them and he can tell us today and I know the Lord's convicting your heart and my heart. The Holy Spirit's doing that in this moment. I would allow him to do that to shift some things in you. But he's saying, hey, I see you in this season and I know that you only have a little power. He says, that's exactly what I need you to have. 
is a little. I just need you to have a little. Remember, there was a boy that brought me some loaves and fishes. He just had a little bit, a little lunch. But I'm the God that can do a lot with a little. You bring him a little bit of faith. You bring him a little bit of power. He can do a lot with that. He's just asking for your portion. He's just asking for your little. I know you've got a little power. And maybe you didn't raise your hand this morning, maybe because you feel like you have no power. And Jesus is looking you in the eyes and saying, no, I know that you possess, Lyle, you possess a little power. Brennan, you possess a little power. Chris, you possess a little power. I can see it in you. Ashton, you possess a little power. Becca, you possess a little power. Sarah, you possess a little power. Marv, you possess a little power. I can see, Church 214, that you've got a little power. Now, if you put that in my hands, I can do a lot with a little power. Benny, why don't you come up here? This is my son Bennett, or Benny as we like to call him. He, uh, he turned 16 uh, last December. December 21st is his birthday. And for a couple years now, he's been saving up to buy my old truck. You know, 16, you kind of, you get a set of keys at 16 sometimes. But he's been working really hard, really diligently, and he'd saved up enough money. Now I give him a good deal. I gave him, a, I gave him the father's discount, right? <laughs> but no, we wanted, to, we wanted to make sure, like there's, I'm not saying never get your, give your kids a car. I'm saying make them responsible to be diligent in what they do so they understand the power and the value of money. So we, we set up a plan, and he was going to buy the car on his 16th birthday, or probably when you, get your, you got your license, which was shortly thereafter. But on the morning of his 16th birthday, he came down to get his presents, and it was right before work. And I said, Benny... I know you've been saving up for that car, mom and dad do, but you know what? We want you to keep your money in your bank account because we're going to give you the set of keys. See, the father gives his son and daughter keys, and now he has a little power. Now, it's his decision what he does with those keys because he could play it safe, like I think most of the church does, and just leave the truck in the driveway and never get hurt and never go anywhere. But then he wouldn't experience anything. He wouldn't drive anywhere. He wouldn't use his little power. He wouldn't use his father's authority to take the vehicle out on the roads and explore the earth and bring heaven to earth. And I think, church, there's a little power that you've been given. You've been given a set of keys. He says, I've given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth, the roads you travel down on earth, that brings heaven to earth. The doors, the, the roads that you decide not to go down, that you, you're binding that thing, but then you're loosing this direction. You decide he wants to partner with family because it's all about family. The father is giving sons and daughters keys. The only question is, are you going to use the authority he's giving you? Because he's got all the keys and he's handing them to you. Thanks, Benny. You can keep those. You already own them. It's your truck. It's your truck. That's the message today is 
you already own the keys. What are you going to do with that? Why don't you stand on your feet? Why don't you close your eyes and just focus on Jesus in this moment? He's reminding you, son, he's reminding you, daughter, that he's giving you the keys of the kingdom. He's giving you keys to drive down that road, to unlock doors, to close other doors. Are you gonna just put them in a drawer somewhere and never use the truck? Or are you going to ask the Father to the little power that he's given you to help you drive down this road and have heaven invade that road that you drive down? What are you going to do with the keys? I believe the Holy Spirit is asking each one of us this morning what we're going to do with the authority that he's giving us. I think there's some doors that you need to step through that he's opened before you. He's set before you a wide open door. And I think there's other doors this morning that you need to shut and close because he's shut them and turned that lock. And if that's you this morning, I'd, I'd invite you to the altar. The Father wants to meet with you. He wants to give you a set of keys this morning. And your situation is different from the son or daughter next to you, but he's wanting to bestow on the entire family a set of keys. He holds them all. He holds the key of death and the grave. He holds David's key to an eternal kingdom. He holds every single key. The question is, are you gonna take those from his hand and turn the ignition and agree with him that you do have a little power and put that vehicle into drive? Or are you just gonna let it park and rust away and squander the keys of heaven that he's given you here on this earth? Because you were meant to unlock something within you, around you. See, the kingdom flows from within you. You were meant to bind and close things because the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our God. But he wants you to close and lock doors on the kingdom of this world. You have the responsibility. He wants to partner with his sons and daughters to expand his kingdom and to drive back the enemy. There's land for you to take. There's a road trip for you to go on, but it's up to you to turn the keys in ignition. See, much of Revelation is about a marking. Not the mark of the beast, yes, that's in there, but it's a marking of the lamb. And when you take his keys, 
when you yield yourself to him, when you turn once again to him, he marks you. He writes his name on you. To the church in Philadelphia and to Church 214, he says, for the one who conquers, for the one who takes these keys, for the one who is victorious, I will make you to be a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, permanently secure. And I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem descending from my God out of heaven. I'll write my own name on you. <laughs> See, here's the cool thing. Revelation 21, sneak preview. It's when the new Jerusalem ascends from heaven. And in the new Jerusalem has 12 gates, 12 foundation stones. Now on the foundation stones are the names of the tribes in the first testament. And written on the gates are the names of the apostles, 12 and 12. Those are your names. And see, those gates never close anymore. There's no need for doors on those gates because evil won't exist anymore. Doors are for protection. Those gates they don't have any doors. The only thing those gates do that are marked are welcoming his presence in because he is the temple. You are his temple. You are the gates. You are the doorway. And this morning he's saying, I've set before you a wide open door, a wide open gateway, and it's you, I'm marking you with my presence. David writes this at the end of Psalm 23, it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell, I will dwell, I will live there in the house of the Lord forever. See, you are a pillar in his sanctuary. You are part of the foundation. You are part of the house of David. You are the gateway. You're the one that David writes about in Psalm 24, where he says, open up ancient gates. Those doorways can't swing wide enough because the king of glory is about to come in. And that's what he's saying in your life today. You are the gate. You're the one I'm marking on. You're a pillar that's permanently secure. You're part of this whole temple that I'm building. It's you. It's my son. It's my daughter. I want you back, but you have to choose me first. He wants you back so desperately. Whether you've strayed with him for, for, for five years or for five minutes, doesn't matter. Turn to him again. Let him mark you today. Become that gateway that just is marked with his name and yearns for his presence. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing this morning. Thank you for marking us, the marking of the Lamb. We receive 
this mark. We receive this new name. We receive what you're writing into the new Jerusalem because we literally are the new Jerusalem. Continue to make us more into heaven. Continue to cause the things of the earth to fade away as we look to you and look to our shepherd and our master, our, our master craftsman who's building into us something so special. Continue to make our hearts cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you do it in me first? Would we follow you through the doors of your opening? And would we have the courage to turn the key with you on the doors of your closing? Thank you that you've given us just a little power. You've given us a set of keys. You've turned us loose on this earth to literally drive heaven onto earth. Thank you, Jesus. You're a good, good Father. Every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no turning. You're so good, Jesus. We worship you. We adore you, love you.